Nashville for All is a relatively new nonprofit run by volunteers, but it's addressing a need in Asheville that goes back decades, developing more affordable housing. You can read articles in the New York Times or the Atlantic about the good liberal person who has a big yard and a Black Lives Matter sign in that front yard, but then they oppose apartments going up next door or down the street. I'm Matt Pikin, and this is The Overlook, a podcast about the news, arts, issues, and trends of Asheville, North Carolina. My guests today are Andrew Paul and John DeRusso, two of the founding volunteers behind Asheville for All. We'll talk about their political advocacy, the resistance that often comes from existing homeowners to add more affordable housing, and how they're making the case for investment in affordable housing from the Buncombe County Tourism Development Authority. Charles Payne has seen what's wrong with public education from three perspectives, as a student, as a teacher, and as a black American. With the help of the Magnetic Theater's program to cultivate playwrights, Payne has written a new work of art called The Classroom Ain't Enough. It's storytelling, poetry, and original music woven into what the playwright calls a choreo poem. Payne says the overarching message in the narrative is that a child only educated in school is an uneducated child. The Classroom Ain't Enough premieres June 2nd and runs through June 17th at the Magnetic Theater. For tickets, go to themagnetictheater with an R-E dot org. Asheville for All is part of a rally at the May 31st Buncombe County TDA board meeting. The organization plans to deliver thousands of petition signatures supporting the earmark of TDA money to build subsidized housing. I began this conversation by asking Andrew Paul what inspired him to found Asheville for All. I've always been interested in housing and land use just from living in lots of cities. I grew up in the Boston area. I've lived in Austin, Texas, spent time in Los Angeles. And now in Asheville, you really get a sense of how different cities shape things like transit use and walkability, but also things like housing affordability and inequality and segregation. And I've been in Asheville for about 10 years, and this has been a perennial issue I remember NPR did a big series in 2015 or 2016 when they came and spent a week in Asheville. And what struck me over the years was that there there were very few voices laying out a pro-housing perspective. Back up a second. Mm -hmm. Why would there be an anti-housing perspective? So delineate pro-housing versus not pro-housing. There's a sensibility that I think you find in Asheville, but you find it all over the country in places like Berkeley, California, and Washington, D.C., and my hometown of Lexington, Massachusetts, where people get really attached to the way that things look around them. I remember living in Austin, Texas. In the early 2000s, I was struck by whenever you met someone, the Austin that they moved to was the Austin that they loved. So when they, if someone came to the city in the 70s, that was their town, and that's the way they wanted to be. If they came in the 80s, that was their town. That's the way they wanted to be, and Asheville very much has that vibe. And so people like their neighborhoods to look the same. To put it bluntly, they're afraid of change. But this is complicated by 
this sort of big, ugly stereotype that we have in this country of home builders. <laughs> and people will use the word developer, and it has this funny kind of connotation. The truth is we all live in homes that were developed by someone. Literally everyone in this country lives in a home that was developed by someone. But this fear of change and this bias towards the status quo makes people anti-housing. One of the things that struck me, an acronym you use in Asheville for all is YES in my backyard, YIMBY. And I thought that was interesting, but what you're speaking to is a NIMBY mentality, right? A not in my backyard, no change, nothing new incurring on my way of life, right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And these acronyms have been around for a long time. And so Asheville for all, we joined a national network called YIMBY Action. But yeah, it's everywhere. It's this, if you ask people in the abstract, if they believe that a growing national population or a growing local population means we need more homes to accommodate them, a lot of people will acknowledge that, yes, that's true. But when you say it has to happen in North Asheville or it has to happen in West Asheville, all of a sudden the narratives start to change. So, John, how did the people who are at the heart of Asheville for All even begin talking about this? Yes, we're recognizing there's an issue with affordable housing. Let's do something about it. Yeah. So housing has been something I've been interested in for a while. Before I lived here in Asheville, I lived in the D.C. area, which is also a very expensive area. I remember that like pretty much as soon as I got there, like it was expensive. I remember going to like renew our lease for the second year and the rent had gone up like 600 bucks a month or something like that. And like, I think that was kind of how I got into housing and just the affordability issue. And then when I moved to Asheville, I was aware that Asheville had, had been growing rapidly, a lot of people moving in and that housing costs were also becoming like a big problem here, even though it used to be more reasonable. So I was like on the lookout for a local organization or something that I might be able to get involved in. And yeah, just happened, I think, come across an article in one of the, I don't know if it was Mountain Express or somewhere where I think that Andy had written and just heard about the organization through there, reached out, joined, started going, we do some meetups now and again, to just getting to know people and also trying to figure out what can we do. And it's just grown out of there. So, Andy, you had written about this. You'd been writing about housing issues. When did you first move to Asheville? What year? And when did this become an acute issue for your attention span? So I moved here in 2014 with a job, and I just noticed that housing was very expensive. And the job was pretty good. Eventually, I got tired of it. We won't get into the owl story. I wasn't happy there, and so I went back to teaching. I'm a professor. I'm a history professor, and teaching doesn't pay a whole lot. I'm an adjunct professor, which means I work on a contract-by-contract basis. And so I was teaching at UNCA and AB Tech. And we saved up a lot of money to buy a house. <laughs> we bought a house in 2020. We had to get it built. So we went with an affordable housing developer, one that many people in town know. But we had a very economical, tall, skinny, small house built 750 square feet in East West Asheville. And a month after we moved in, we found out we were pregnant with twins, which meant we are going to need a bigger house. I guess I would say congratulations <laughs> to the question mark because it presents yes. challenges, right? It's, it's interesting that you're talking about this, that you were in a position unlike other people, even though you were an adjunct professor, you had an income, you, you were able to buy a house, which eludes so many people in this town. 
you needed to move into a bigger house once you knew you were going to have twins. Is this when you started thinking beyond your own circumstances? Like, did you see something in a macro way that needed to be addressed because of what was happening with you? Oh, absolutely. As a history professor, I'm often thinking on that sort of sociological level. So I certainly realized a personal need here, but I'm also thinking about the needs of the community. And like a lot of people, I became politically active around the 2016 presidential election and the 2020 presidential election. So I was actually the co-chair and secretary of the local Asheville DSA chapter for a couple of years. Explain DSA. Sure. DSA is the Democratic Socialists of America and learned a whole lot. I never knocked doors or canvassed or tried to rally people in a park before. And so that was just a great learning experience. And I'm still involved with Asheville DSA, but I came to realize that housing was the problem facing our community and it's facing everyone, low-income people, middle-income people, teachers like me, service industry workers. That's what one of our current campaigns is all about, helping service industry workers. So it's really an issue that affects everyone. And that's when I realized I got to sort of branch off and, and, and try something new here. Once you decided to have a collective that you, decide, that you named Asheville for All, what was the mandate behind this? What was the cause? Was it simply being a siren call that this is an issue? Or what, was there a broader, deeper mission and goal here? I think when you do political advocacy, and to be clear, Asheville for All is a political advocacy organization. There are great organizations that are building housing. There are great organizations that are working with tenants, working with renters. Asheville for All is a political advocacy organization. And, and what you realize is you have to have a bunch of different strategies. So first of all, you need to build popular support. We call this building your base. Because if you don't have a base, then other strategies like, for instance, talking to politicians isn't going to work. They're not going to take you seriously. So some things are inward facing. Some things are outward facing. But I think so much of it comes back. It's all these sort of loops, all these chicken and egg loops. But so much of it comes back to the idea that we have this culture in Asheville that is very invested in a status quo. Can you please explain that a little bit? This organization just formed last year, right? In 2022. I imagine your talks as a collective, you mentioned this status quo, that there's this status quo. And I imagine breaking the status quo is a mandate of this group. What is the status quo or how would you define it? I think it's a set of ideologies and a set of misconceptions. There's a famous joke. Uh, I don't know if it's a joke, but it's a cliche at this point where you can read articles in the New York Times or the Atlantic about the good liberal person who has a big yard and a Black Lives Matter sign in that front yard, but then they oppose apartments going up next door or down the street. And again, I think that's ideological in a way. I think it's based on misconceptions in a way. And and maybe it's just being uninformed because it's easy to form a disconnect between this big abstract problem of segregation and housing scarcity and then this question of what do I want my neighborhood to look like? 
I get what you're saying. The status quo is what you're saying is the yard sign liberal, the people who will wear bumper stickers and put yard signs and say Black Lives Matter and put a black icon on their Facebook profile for a day or a blue icon, whatever is the color du jour to wear. I completely see that. And yet at the same time, I think it's a natural human instinct to think, how is whatever is going to come in that's new? How is this going to affect me? Part of it, as you mentioned, too, is just the very basic, like people are very concerned about what's going on near them. And I think that's part of the idea of our organization, too, is just like when there's a new condo building or something going up, like normally what happens is the people who live right next to it may not like it. Maybe some of them do, but like the only people who are going to show up to the city meeting are the people who are really upset about something. If there's a kind of building going up in North Asheville and I live over in West Asheville, like most people aren't going to be like, oh, they're not going to come show up to the meeting and be like, yeah, you should build this condo building. This person down the street might be concerned about it. So you tend to get a lot of negativity when there's like public input. So part of the idea of having an organization to say yes to housing is just so that there are voices there pushing towards, yeah, we just need some housing, a little bit of housing everywhere. And I think to your point, too, sometimes if we haven't had change for a while, the population just keeps growing. Like, you just need housing over time. But if you freeze stuff in place, then suddenly, like, you need to build, like, a really big building to absorb some of that. And as we might talk about a little bit, there's a push for a missing middle housing, which tends to be smaller. And you can do that in more places. And it's not quite as disruptive if you're just building, like, a few townhomes here, what duplex there. Like, you can add a lot of housing without really annoying people in the same way as when you're trying to put up like a really big building near them. Step into the weird, fantastical wonderland of Alice and the White Rabbit through the lens of Asheville Contemporary Dance Theater. It's a family show with colorful sets and costumes in collaboration with the new studio of dance. Alice and the White Rabbit opens May 26th and runs six performances through June 4th at the Intimate BB Theater in downtown Asheville. For tickets and info, go to the company's website, acdt.org. What are some of the things you're trying to do as Asheville for All to break through this status quo, or at least the part of the status quo that we have talked about so far? So Asheville for All has two main campaigns right now. One of them we're in the thick of, and the other is just going to be gearing up. So the first one is one that we are doing in coalition with a bunch of other organizations, which is really exciting, and that is to get the local tourism development authority to spend some money on housing for working people. And so I'm sure many of your listeners know what the Buncombe County TDA is, the Buncombe County Tourism Development Authority. They are the institution that handles all of the occupancy taxes that are collected in Buncombe County. So when someone stays at a hotel in our county, they pay an occupancy tax. If someone stays in an Airbnb, Actually, Airbnb kicks a portion of that money back to the county as an occupancy tax. And so the Buncombe County TDA takes in tens of millions of dollars every year, and they spend most of that money on advertising to bring more and more people into town. Let's be clear that the TDA's mandate, at least as dictated by the state of Mm -hmm. North Carolina, is to spend now, at least I think at this point, the breakdown has 
been changed recently, 66% of what comes into TDA through occupancy taxes is mandated that it goes back into promoting tourism, correct? Yes, absolutely. The state government puts a whole bunch of restrictions on here. And I want to be clear, we are not anti-tourism. We are not anti-TDA. But there's this question, and the county commission has been talking about this for many years, how do we make the TDA more, quote unquote, democratic? So let's say that mandate doesn't change, okay? How are you framing affordable housing as being part of a the tourism ecosystem that can fit legally if not spiritually, under the TDA's mandate. 33% of the TDA's budget does not have to go to advertising, and that 33% is split into two. So half of that 33% is called the lift fund, and the lift fund is brand new, and that's a little looser. There are some restrictions, but the way we read it, the way that our coalition reads it, is that this money can certainly spent on the working people in Asheville that work in restaurants, that work in hotels, and that in doing so, work to prop up our tourism economy. It's very clear that the people who would be helped and served by this money going toward affordable housing work in the service industry, you know, that there is that connection. You said this is part of your ongoing work. This is already happening. Who is part of this coalition with this part of Asheville for All's cause? Number one. And number two, what feedback or what kind of sense are you getting from the people inside the TDA that this is something they're willing to talk about? It's been great working with these folks. So it's Asheville Food and Beverage United, who I think many people know about from their ask last year about getting parking for workers downtown. So it's Asheville Food and Beverage United, Asheville Democratic Socialists of America, DSA, and Buncombe Decides. And Buncombe Decides is a new grassroots organization that's just all about democratizing the TDA. And we have been going out every weekend at farmer's markets and stationing on the greenways just to talk to people, and the response has been absolutely fantastic. We are collecting petition signatures. You can go to our website and sign the petition online. And we've, I think we're up to 1,200 or 1,300 signatures at this point. So people want this to happen. And so part of our goal, we don't wanna go to the TDA and say, look, these three organizations really want this to happen. We wanna go to them and say, look, Asheville wants this to happen. But whether Asheville wants this to happen, the TDA, at least from what I've seen in public hearings, public meetings, I get this sense from them as you just all don't get it. You know, that you, the masses, don't understand, A, what we serve and who we serve, and B, that if we're focusing on these more direct advertising elements, these more very direct tourism feeding programs and campaigns that brings more people into town, that brings more money into town, that feeds everybody's pockets. I think it might be overgeneralizing here, but I think that's what I've sensed is their ethos. Now, you just spoke to that you have 1,200 signatures. You have a lot of people behind you in this. Do you have the ear of the TDA? And if so, what are you hearing from them? So I can only tell you what's relayed by other people in the coalition that have sat down with people from the TDA. And from what I've heard is somewhat positive. I think this new split, the new lift fund, gives them room to do the right thing. And I think they are aware 
that a growing economy is a good economy, right? We don't want to be like, I don't want to, like you and I spent time in the Rust Belt. We, we have cities we don't want to be like, but I think they are aware that part of what tourism does is does create a demand for housing here both in terms of more people want to come here, they find out about Asheville, and also the sort of Airbnb thing, which is a totally separate. We could spend an hour talking about Airbnb. I, but I think they are aware that there is pressure being put on the housing market, in part because they do what they do. Now, I want to be clear. We are not against people moving here. I think that is the wrong way to take this whole thing. That's why we are pro-housing. Because we believe that if you want to move to Asheville, you should be able to move to Asheville. And look, even if you were against people moving here, you can't do anything about it. Yeah, we, yeah. You know, there's, we, can't, we haven't figured out a way to put a moat in around right. the mountains. So given that people are moving here, it seems like you're taking a very proactive way, way of trying to address that. You've talked about the first thing that's been ongoing with Asheville for All. What is the thing, the campaign that you're about to be part of? What's happening going ahead? Yeah, so at the moment, so the Asheville city government is looking at, I guess they have a, mis- a missing middle study. And the idea of missing middle housing is you can see it around town and other places where you tend to have single family homes. And then, as you mentioned, oftentimes you'll get like a big 60 unit condo building or apartment building or something like that. But historically, and in a lot of places, there's all these other like housing types that are like in between there, where you could have something like townhomes where, you know, you can fit more townhomes in some particular like amount of land than if you have houses with big lawns. Same thing too, like I'm originally from Albany, New York, and certain neighborhoods there, they're just full of duplexes where essentially like the first floor is one unit, second floor is another unit, they're all over the place. I feel like if you weren't paying attention, you wouldn't even know there's two doors on the house or whatever. They just look like single family homes, but you can fit twice as many people in an area. Is this what you're talking about when you talk about middle housing? Is it a specific physical type of housing or is it a certain need of housing that you're talking about? It's closer to a physical type. I would say it's essentially all those kind of types that are in between the large like condo buildings and apartment buildings and single family homes. And you'll see them around town, but they're a lot less common than maybe they used to be historically. So one of the things that I, from what I understand and what I've been reading, that the incentives for developers on the kinds of housing they develop, there's two, there's either the bigger homes that take up a lot of space and that sell for a lot of money or micro housing to where it's much smaller units packed into condos and townhomes, not necessarily as rentals, but as purchased as townhome and condos, that those seem to be, for developers, the best return on dollar, and that this seems like this middle housing, perhaps, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it fell out of favor with developers, if only because the return on investment for what it costs to build those and what they sell for, just the, the proposition isn't the same. Am I wrong on that? Yeah, I think you're getting at something important, which is that we often blame home builders and contractors and developers for what our cities look like when really we write the rules. So we have rules right now that incentivize McMansions. 
on 90% of our land. That's an exaggeration. 60, 70% of our land. And, and then downtown, you, you end up having a sort of a different set of incentives because land value gets inflated that tend to these micro units. When, you know, yeah, when you have all these sort of rules that, to be clear, were written during the era of segregation, and these rules were written by segregationists for the express purpose of segregation, then yeah, you end up with these really weird outcomes. And so exactly, part of the missing middle strategy is going to be rewriting the local zoning code, what's called the UDO, but also thinking more broadly about what incentives home builders have. Are there developments happening in this city that you see as models? Yes, this is what we're talking about, and we want to see more of this. I'm not, I don't know the whole history of this, but there was something called Rad Tip, where the city was very proactive. So Rad Tip was basically an infrastructure project. They said, we know eventually we want more stuff in the River Arts District, so we're going to make sure the sewer works. We're going to make sure the water lines work, and that was a whole project. And then, so parallel to that they changed the zoning code. They updated the zoning code in the River Arts District to something called a form-based code. And I won't get into what that means, but basically it's a good thing. A form-based code says we want walkable, livable neighborhoods. So I think a lot of the buildings you're just starting to see get approved and go up in the River Arts District are going to make that neighborhood in 10 years feel really lively and walkable and connected. One of the things that I've held up as a model that happens in a lot of other cities and I don't see happening so much here, although I believe it's barely starting to happen in the Montford neighborhood, is lower level retail, upper level residential. There's touches of it happening even downtown. Is that fit the model of what you're talking about in terms of the kind of developments you want to see happen? Yes, definitely. Right now, in a, because of zoning specifically, we often separated kind of commercial uses and residential uses. But that meant if you were in a residential area, there was no coffee shops, there's no corner grocery stores, that stuff's all essentially illegal. It's really nice if you can combine those in a way that lets you, you can live above the coffee shop and be able to walk to a restaurant or walk to a grocery store. And that stuff all exists together, which means you can get to places on foot or on bike and not have to go from a place that's all single family homes or even for that matter, all townhomes or whatever it is, and have to say drive into downtown because that's where all the restaurants are and stuff like that. The city has been working on this. They're, they passed something a couple of years ago called the Urban Centers Rezoning. So you can Google Asheville Urban Centers. So this is something that the city has been thinking about and they've rezoned some parts of Tunnel Road and in North Asheville, near where the Save More is. And I think we're going to be seeing some action up there to create new, denser communities. I was talking with Stephanie Monsendahl, who's a city planner, and she's, I don't know anybody who knows more about this than her. And she's talking about a lot of these things that there's, that there's a lot of culture to unravel here in terms of the way things were done and how they can be done going forward. Zoning is one of the few tools, it seems, that the city has at its disposal that the state can't, it hasn't figured out how to meddle in. And what do you want to see happening? What needs to happen in local zoning to open up more area for the kind of housing, this middle housing that you're talking about? Yeah, it can be lots of different things. And you mentioned stuff about the state 
stepping in and stuff. One big thing that started to happen in a lot of states is that state governments actually are stepping in and setting sort of minimum standards and things. I think actually Montana just this week passed a whole lot of stuff around like various zoning rules. Montana is also the state that just <laughs> kicked out a trans member from its, yeah. <laughs> from its chambers. So let's not cast Montana's legislature as necessarily the most progressive in the country. But I hear what yeah. you're saying. California also has too. So it's not necessarily even like housing doesn't have to be some sort of partisan issue. As you saw, Montana can do it. California can do it. Is there anything about else about Asheville for All that we haven't talked about that is you think is important for people to understand about your organization? I think one thing we haven't talked about is environmentalism, and it's something I've been thinking more and more about. There is a very famous environmentalist named Bill McKibben, been around for years. He wrote a great article in Mother Jones this month about how he became a Yimby, how he realized that building dense, walkable neighborhoods is good for the environment. And it's just so fascinating to me how people in Asheville, many of the same people that oppose housing, that oppose density, that oppose urban infill, call themselves environmentalists. And it's, and it's like, because there's some lawn, <laughs> there's some lawn in your neighborhood and someone might build an ADU on it. An ADU is like a small, a small house that, that might be added to a lot where a house already exists. What's that acronym mean? Accessory dwelling unit. So, you know, if you oppose an ADU because there's a lawn there and you might see a little less greenery, you're not actually thinking like an environmentalist. But it, again, it's, these are misconceptions and they go back decades. And so how do you get people to think of housing as being anti-segregation, pro-equality, but also pro-environment? I think that's another discussion that we really want to have with Asheville. So much of it is that this is about democracy. And a lot of times it's a very small group of people that oppose housing that are able to show up at meetings because they have extra time. Maybe they're retired. They also show up against about imposing noise ordinances <laughs> and other things to because they don't want their way of life disrupted. That seems to be the common thread. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, it's who has free time. It's the same if you read the letters in the newspaper. Who writes letters in the newspaper? They tend to be older, they tend to be whiter, and they tend to be wealthier. So yes, it, it is about mobilizing people and showing people there is broad support for, for this kind of change in Asheville. I want to thank my guests today, Andrew Paul and John DeRusso of Asheville for All. The organization is planning to present petitions with signatures at the Buncombe County TDA's May 31st meeting to call on the TDA to devote money to build affordable housing. Today's conversation happened inside the BB Theater in downtown Asheville, which owners Susan and Giles Collard have been so gracious enough to open to me to record my interviews. Our theme music for The Overlook, Maker's Song, comes courtesy of the Asheville band The Resonant Rogues. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. New episodes are online by 6 a.m. every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our weekly newsletter at podavl.com. And please support the show by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash The Overlook Podcast. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook.